The old pilot's plain tales, bathtubs, potatoes, shoes and flat irons. Gaze around the fabulous Smithsonian Air and Space Museums in Washington and you'll see some wonderful looking aircraft and some damned ugly ones as well. Of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but even so, it takes a squinting, sideways look through very dark glasses to make some exhibits look attractive. One such aircraft might be the Northrop M2F3. As I write this, it was in this very month, back in 1972, that this bulbous, wingless metal bathtub took its last flight with NASA research pilot John Mankey at the controls to 71,500 feet and safely back to Earth. Of course, if you give something enough thrust, it will probably fly, even if it's just for a while. But having got it into the air, it has to have some redeeming features, or it won't stand a chance of landing safely again. The family of aircraft that the M2F3 belonged to had very few redeeming features, but just enough to do the job. And the job was to descend from very high level, as a spacecraft re-entering from Earth's orbit would do, and come down in a controllable manner through the ever-thickening atmosphere to make a safe landing on a convenient runway so that the vehicle could be used again. Up to this point, the conclusion of a spaceflight was re-entry in a capsule, which was generally on a ballistic flight path over which the astronauts had very little control. During deceleration, the G-forces were very high, upwards of 8G, and landing was courtesy of parachutes. What's more, the potential landing area was vast, with no real way to alter it once the arrival angles were set. It was in the early 60s, as the Apollo program was gearing up to take the first men up to walk on a planet other than Earth, that the concept of the lifting body took off, so to say. I don't think that Roy Scroggs would ever have imagined that his patent, registered in 1917 for the very first lifting body conceived, would ever be used for such a lofty purpose, but it was him that came up with the idea. A tailor from Eugene in Oregon, he designed a noseless, long, narrow delta that would provide safe, economical performance to everyday flying enthusiasts. His design was much ridiculed, so when he finally registered a full-size machine as November Charlie 10648, he called it the last laugh. Following initial test flights, his detractors proved correct, as a lifting body is very inefficient at the sort of speeds he could manage, and he gave up on the project. But little did he know that his ideas would later form the basis for spacecraft design, and he would, indeed, get the last laugh. I should probably explain what a lifting body actually is and how it flies. 
Imagine a dumpy little aircraft of conventional design and take off both the wings and the tailplanes so that all you have is the fuselage and the fin. That is a lifting body. Directional stability and control usually requires two or even three fins and pitch control was achieved by attaching elevons onto the rear of the fuselage. Of course, without wings to provide lift, the lifting body has to create all it needs from the shape of the fuselage, mainly the underside. Almost every shape imaginable can create lift to one degree or another, and most parts of an aircraft contribute to the overall amount of lift. We only tend to refer to the wings because they provide the most. If we assume that a brick has a glide angle of 90 degrees, which mean it's coming vertically straight down, and a sport glider has a glide angle of around 1 degree, hardly descending at all, then more or less everything else lies in between. The average airliner glides at around 5 degrees, which isn't much different from a Cessna 172, which achieves 5.2 degrees. A lifting body can manage a glide angle of 16 degrees. Not bad at all, considering it doesn't have wings. What the lifting body design had to achieve was to be able to fly in a pretty precise and controllable manner through just about the greatest speed range imaginable. At the start of re-entry, it would be doing around 17,000 miles an hour. Once into the upper reaches of the atmosphere, it would become hypersonic, starting at Mach 25 and slowing to Mach 5 around 3,400 miles an hour. As it came lower, it would move to the supersonic range between Mach 5 and Mach 1.5, that's 3,400 down to 1,000 miles an hour, and then into the transonic region, of Mach 1.5 to Mach 0.8, that's a mere 1,000 down to 550 miles an hour. From there, it would be subsonic as it continued to slow from 550 miles an hour to a landing speed of around 200 miles an hour. I don't know about you, but I find that just getting my head around the enormity of that challenge almost beyond me. The problems involved must have seemed impossibly daunting, but in NASA and the space agencies in other countries, there were men and women willing and capable of taking on that challenge. To summarise, the craft had to survive re-entry heating, it had to limit the deceleration g-forces to only around 3g, it had to be manoeuvrable in three distinct phases, hypersonic, supersonic and subsonic, and then achieve a conventional landing. It had to have a sufficiently low lift-over-drag ratio so that it could glide successfully. It had to be large enough to carry an adequate payload volume and weight. And finally, it needed to be reusable. So were born a series of the most unlikely-looking aircraft since Roy Scroggs got into the air, only to around 10 feet, mind you, in the last laugh. It started with the Northrop M2F2, an all-metal, blunt-nosed Delta design with a bulbous, rounded belly 
and a flat upper surface above which protruded a bubble canopy. It had a pair of fins on either side of the rear end with rudders and split elevons both on the top and the bottom of the rear fuselage, but I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Let's go to the remote desert flight test area that housed the NASA Flight Research Center at Edwards Air Force Base. Working in there was a small band of uniquely qualified people who had been brought together to test fly the Bell XS-1, which became the X-1 Glamorous Glenis that took Chuck Yeager supersonic for the first time. It was a place where test pilots, engineers and technicians breathed the same air and walked the same corridors. In 1963, the lifting body concept started when an enthusiastic engineer, Dale Reed, circumvented all the normal bureaucratic channels by getting a band of volunteers together to work on his ideas. They unofficially designed and worked on their creation on a shoestring, financed by the money they were given to maintain the facility. In their spare time, they begged, borrowed and stole what they needed to get things done. When they wanted a rocket engine, they got their hands on an old rocket that had powered early experimental aircraft for nearly 30 years. They managed to get museums to give up their exhibits and even reuse the motor from Chuck Yeager's Bell X-1. Their first flying creation was actually the M2F1, M for manned, F for flight which was knocked up out of plywood over a tubular metal frame and towed aloft by an R4D, which is a Navy C-47, or as some know it, a Douglas DC-3. The unlikely wooden aircraft was nicknamed the Flying Bathtub. A number of the fabricators and engineers were members of the Experimental Aircraft Association who had worked together on previous programs in the Flight Research Centre's unofficial skunk works. It was a simple aircraft, just created to examine the problems of low-speed control and performance, but flown by an exclusive club of pilots, such as Milt Thompson, Bruce Peterson, Chuck Yeager, and others. Three on the list went on to become astronauts. Fred Hayes went to the Apollo program and was involved in the near disaster that befell Apollo 13. Joe Engel and Dick Scobie became shuttle commanders for space flights. The success of the flight trials ensured proper status and funding for the project, so it progressed to the M2F2 all-metal aircraft, which became known as the Flying Potato. Also a purely gliding prototype, it was carried under the wing of the same B-52 that launched the X-15 rocket research aircraft. It was on one of these gliding tests that NASA pilot Bill Peterson nearly lost his life. If, like me as a kid, you ever watched The Six Million Dollar Man, you will have seen his crash many times.
Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. Patterson was distracted by a helicopter near his approach path, and in a machine that suffered from poor roll control, he drifted on a crosswind into an area of the lake bed landing area where there weren't any runway markings. Unable to judge his height, he fired the landing rockets but hit the ground before his gear was fully deployed. He rolled his aircraft six times along the lake bed before coming to rest upside down. They did indeed rebuild him, but sadly he lost the sight in one eye because of an infection. The success of the trial flights grew, and before long other designs were getting into the act. Northrop moved on to a rocket-powered version called the HL-10, Horizontal Landing 10th Design, which was similar to the M2F2 but with three fins. It flew well and reached 90,000 feet and Mach 1.86. Martin built the X-23 Prime, an unmanned vehicle which was launched atop an Atlas launch rocket to around 100,000 feet. It was designed to deploy a Drogue balut and then be captured in mid-air by a modified C-130 Hercules, which was actually achieved in one of the three flights. Martin also trialled the X-24 series of craft. The A model was, like the Northrop design, short, fat and bulbous, but using its XLR-11 four-chambered rocket engine, it got to Mach 1.35 at over 71,000 feet. The B model was a flattened Delta with a pointed nose which flew to Mach 1.5 at 74,000 feet and despite being a decidedly cooler design was dubbed the Flying Flatiron. Several other versions were envisaged but never flown but one mock-up, the SV-5J, was used in several movies as a spaceship prop. The Northrop designs progressed to the M2F3, which, after Bill Patterson's crash, was the same damaged machine but rebuilt and redesigned with a third fin to aid in stability. It got up to Mach 1.613 and on its last flight, on the 20th of December 1972, reached 71,500 feet. There were other lifting body designs being developed elsewhere. The USAF contracted Boeing to build a military spaceplane that could fulfil various missions, including bombing and reconnaissance, and as a space interceptor. The Boeing design was a low-winged delta shape with winglets for control and named the X-20 Dinosaur. No, I'm not kidding... They called it the dinosaur. Short for the Dynamic Saurer. Their program ran from 1957 to 1963, cost $660 million and was cancelled just after construction started. The main problems appear to have come from uncertainty over which booster was to be used to launch the craft 
and a lack of clear goal for the project. In the UK, the British Aircraft Corporation was designing a reusable space vehicle under English Electric at Wharton. Simply named Mustard, it stood for Multi-Unit Space Transport and Recovery Device and was a novel design. A delta-winged craft with a blended-wing design, it would be launched as a triplet of vehicles, or up to five depending on the needs, each neatly nestled against the other. The outer two machines were there to act as boosters, and when their job was done, they would detach from the centre one and glide back to Earth. The centre module would use its engine to continue its journey into orbit and re-enter to glide back when its task was completed. In this way, every part of the assembly could be reused. The British government shelved the project in 1970, but Key Mustard staff spent time working at North American Rockwell, contributing to the study that would ultimately lead to the space shuttle. The Russians were a little late to the game with the MiG-105 Spiral, which was built, probably in response to the USAF's dinosaur. It had a cute upturned nose, leading it to be named the Shoe. Work began in 1965 and continued sporadically until 1978, but it did achieve eight successful test flights. That was, with a few exceptions, the conclusion of the early lifting body experimental craft, and with the development of better ablative materials, the designs went forward to winged re-entry vehicles such as the Space Shuttle and the Russian Buran. The early work that came out of Edwards has continued to be used with more advanced machines such as the HL-20, which came from a NASA and the North Carolina State University collaboration, and progress forward to the Dream Chaser project and the Orbital Science Prometheus spacecraft. To the east, the Russian Clipper project started in 2000 but is now on hold. The Virgin Galactic spacecraft design, despite setbacks, is getting closer to success, and India's RLVTD mini space shuttle continues to progress. However, all these spacecraft owe an enormous debt to those who came before, and for a while, mustard, potatoes, bathtubs, shoes, and flat irons ruled the wrist. My thanks to Mainman Micah for suggesting this story. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.